This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, you learned how Greats.com built a brand with a 50% repeat purchase rate. In this episode, you learn about how an entrepreneur's routines, habits, and outside interests helped him build a successful e-commerce business. In this episode, you'll learn where you should focus when putting together a contract with a manufacturer, does business school help with entrepreneurship, and why having lots of cash can actually be the kiss of death. Today, I'm joined by Woody Kasson from faucetface.com. That's F-A-U-C-E-T-F-A-C-E.com. Faucetface sells classic custom design and limited edition glass water bottles. Was started in 2011 and based out of Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Woody. Thank you so much. Cool. So tell us a little bit more about your, your store and what are some of the most popular products that, that you sell? So Fossil Face is a marketer of eco-friendly glass water bottles. We've uh, been around um, since originally 2011, and um, we have a, a diverse set of uh, glass bottles that we sell. We have three um, types of bottles. We have our classic uh, design bottles, which include three styles, which have been with the company since the beginning. We have limited edition bottles, which we launch periodically based on themes that uh, develop from time to time, current events, seasonal um, type things that we like to highlight, etc. And then we also have our uh, custom design bottles, which are uh, is a very uh, rapidly growing part of our business. We essentially do uh, custom bottles for private label purposes for stores and websites that want to resell them with their design and look and feel. We also do a lot of work with promotional products, uh, companies, and distributors who want to utilize our bottles for um, advertising purposes, for promotion recognition, things of that nature, to uh, enhance their brand, uh, reward employees, and uh, use these as gifts for clients, customers, etc. Very cool. So what is your background? How did you get involved in a business like this? So interesting. It's been a bit of a long uh, roundabout route, so to speak, but um, I originally started off my career in the financial world. I worked on Wall Street for a number of years and then uh, decided that wasn't uh, something I wanted to do for uh, the rest of my life and uh, um, basically made my way into a career change through going to graduate school. Um, I went to graduate school at UCLA, got my master's in business there. And then decided to become an entrepreneur back around the early 2000s. And um, through a series of entrepreneurial pursuits, both on my own and with uh, partners as, as, as a partner or as a part of a larger company, I should say, um, you know, was an entrepreneur for about uh, a decade before um, being uh, introduced to Faucet Face. And so uh, I worked in a number of industries. Most were in the consumer product space, uh, health and wellness, um, things of that nature. And uh I was with a, a recent company back in, in the kind of 2003 to 2009 timeframe, which was a company called the Allen James Group, which uh, sold uh, supplements. And the company was um, grown, grew pretty rapidly, um, basically was one of the founding members, which helped to build, manage, and then sell the company back in 2009. And after that um, acquisition or sale uh, took place, I should say, decided I wanted to go off and do something on my own and um, was looking for the right opportunity for myself to either start a company or possibly uh, acquire a company. 
And um, along the way, met the uh, original founder of Faucet Face, Mason Gentry, who was a terrific guy, great product designer. And uh, just, you know, we had a series of discussions on and off over a period of time. And into the 2013 timeframe, he decided he wanted to, go, wanted to go off and do other things. And um, based on uh, the nature of my background, which was much more focused on growing uh, existing businesses in the consumer product space, health and wellness, things like that. Uh, we both decided it was a good fit for me to, to take uh, Faucet Face to the next level. And we worked out uh, the transition of the company to my ownership back in, in mid-2013. Very cool. So, um, yeah, so I definitely want to talk about that process or that, that uh, I guess, experience of purchasing a business. Before we get there, you mentioned that you were already working a job, uh, but then decided to go to graduate school, uh, business school, and then came out and wanted to look into entrepreneurship. Did you find that your business school experience helped with uh, entrepreneurship? Because I think this is, I guess, a topic that comes up often, whether... No, it's, it's a fantastic question. I actually majored in entrepreneurship at the Anderson School at UCLA, which is one of the top programs. And, uh, you know, it really was um, an experience for me because I came from a very corporate background. And so that was kind of the first step for me in really getting exposure to these concepts and mm -hmm. these types of environments. I actually worked with a company while I was in graduate school that was a technology company back in the late 90s, which was, uh, that was, you know, part of the time when the whole doc, you know, com. Uh, experience was, uh, you know, very much uh, in play, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it was a very interesting um, learning experience for me, you know, both getting into education and entrepreneurship, but then at the same time getting a firsthand experience while I was in school. But to answer your question directly, um, I feel it was, it was, it was pretty helpful. Um, you know, not in as much as it just really allowed me to transition from one career to the next, but um, there are things that um, I guess I really didn't appreciate as much um, without really um, understanding them from an academic perspective until I was exposed to them as far as what it takes to manage a company with limited resources, um, what it takes to put together a, a credible business plan to present that to investors. Um, I took a number of classes with some of the leading professors uh, in this you know, kind of arena, so to speak. And um, you know, the education was super helpful for me. Um, so I feel like I would recommend that to anybody as, as an option for them in, in considering uh, a career in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, if you, especially if you approach it from the mindset of I want to get everything I need out of uh, graduate school, out of business school, so I can become an entrepreneur. I think it's a little bit different when other people have approached it, where they think that they'll go to graduate school and then figure it out after they get out. But it sounds like you went in, knew what you needed to get out of it, and then focus on that. And I think that's always key whenever you are trying to learn something, go into it with a goal in mind of what you actually want to get out of it. So it sounds like that's exactly what you did. Cool. So you, um, you mentioned that, uh, so you obviously you purchased the, the business. Well, before we get there, you mentioned that you had already, did you already co-found the previous company, the one that you were talking about for, that ran from 2003 to 2009, or when did you join that company? Um, I was one of the founding members back in 2003, and I joined up with uh, another group of individuals who uh, I uh, was introduced to. Uh, you know, collectively, the four of us founded the company back in 2003, 2004. And um, as I said, I was part of the uh, growth of the company over a period of about six years. Uh, the company was ultimately sold to um, a big public company called Nutraceutical Corp, which is a leading player in the in the vitamin and supplement space. So yeah, I mean, I basically ran it from beginning to end. And uh, you know, when the company was sold, um, decided it was time for me to go do something on my own, and uh, it was a perfectly um, 
um, you know, kind of uh, conciliatory kind of move, so to speak, in the sense that it was, um, you know, I was very instrumental in the sale process. There was nothing that was hidden from that standpoint. And I was very supportive of management's uh, decision to um, go ahead and, and pursue that direction because Nutraceutical was able to take the company to the next level um, in a way that I don't think we were at that point in time. So mm, Makes sense. So what was your experience like, uh, you know, co-founding or being a founding member of a company that ran for, you know, uh, several years? And what, what did you, I guess, like and didn't like about it that you want to make sure you kind of got right, I guess, when you start a new company? So, I mean, there's just so much to do when you start a company that I don't think you really can appreciate the magnitude of what you're getting into until you're actually doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm for sure, you know, like when you get the education and you kind of understand what's involved just from a, a textbook standpoint in building and growing a business, I think you have a, a reasonable appreciation. But once you get into it and really feel the pressures of dealing with both the vendors and customers as a small business, I, you know, for me, that's the biggest lesson that I learned. And I, I wanted to make sure I highlighted this point in our discussion today. You know, when you're a growing business and you're dealing with um, vendors typically as a small customer and then on the other side of the you know equation, so to speak, you're dealing with customers who are bigger uh, than you and you're a small vendor, it's you're kind of caught in the middle as basically being someone who gets uh, pressure from both sides. And it's really important as an entrepreneur and as someone who's trying to grow a business to, to stand your ground and to make sure that you can negotiate uh, arrangements that are favorable for your company. Because... Um, Candidly speaking, I mean, if you don't actually um, have the wherewithal to, you know, stand your ground and make sure that you can, uh, um, you know, get terms that allow you to be successful, you will um, uh, typically find that as a small customer and or a small vendor, you can, um, in some cases, be taken advantage of. And that's something which can very much impact uh, the early success of an entrepreneurial venture. And so getting that experience firsthand when I was part of the Alan James Group, the company, which I, you know, was part of. Uh, building, managing, and then selling was really an eye-opener for me. Um, It wasn't as if we were explicitly taken advantage of, but there's the subtle things and the negotiating points and the deal points that are important to really stay on top of because you can get into situations which, you know, hamstring your ability to effectively manage and grow the business. And so um, that's one of the the most important things that I I took away from that experience that I've utilized in, in, in growing faucet face and making sure that I'm always cognizant of those sorts of issues to make sure that the company is able to, um, you know, work through a relationships that we have and that we don't get into situations that ultimately will not allow the company to be successful in the long term. Yeah, I love that. I want to dive into a little bit, a little bit more because you know when you're an entrepreneur, and you kind of get into the game. You not necessarily get blindsided, but it happens so quickly that you, before you know it, you're you know people are putting their hands in your pocket here, pocket there, and all of a sudden you're not in a really good situation like you're talking about. So, are right. there any tips that you have for managing this kind of pressure? Like, what kind of preparation can you do to make sure that you stand your ground, like you're saying? So I would say in the, in the first example, dealing with vendors, you know, in the in the sense that um, the companies that I've worked with, it, there's always uh, contract manufacturing and logistics and things like that involved. It's always important to get one or two or three different options for every uh, service or uh, relationship that you enter into, just so you can um, negotiate uh, one group against the other. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important, establishing what the market is for certain products or services. And if you are um, in a situation where you're short on time or where you're short on cash or, or possibly both, uh, sometimes you can get forced into situations that are, are very much uneconomical and will you know, significantly impact your ability to grow the business. So always getting two or three options for any product or service, getting references, making sure that you take things slow, you get everything in writing with respect to agreements. Uh, those are all important features that I would recommend highly to any uh, person um, kind of thinking about going down this path. And then 
with respect to customers, I mean, my business sold to the largest retailers in the country from Walmart to, um, you know, the top supermarkets and drugstore chains like CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. And so you can imagine what you get your products on the shelf with those customers. There are significant uh, costs that go into setting up with those customers in terms of uh, fees to get up and running. There are promotional requirements. There are uh, a whole bunch of things that are um, involved in selling products to customers like that. And so understanding all of those uh, little things, so to speak, in, in, in selling to certain customers, I mean, it sounds great to have your product uh, on the shelf and, you know, at the top retailers in the country, but if you don't understand all the things that go into those sorts of relationships, you can find yourself pretty quickly underwater. And in some cases, I mean, I've, I've seen companies and products that um, had a great concept, great product, great branding, but um, they weren't able to manage the economics and ultimately they couldn't survive and grow, I think, to uh, the extent that they had hoped. So um, those are the kind of things that I think are important to understand from, from the get-go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, uh, you know, you had a lot of great things to say from the from the customer perspective. I think the other angle, which you alluded to earlier, that a lot of entrepreneurs run into is that they, they start working with these manufacturers or logistics companies that are many times larger than them and could, you know, do with or without their business. You know, when they come, when they enter this kind of agreement, this these larger companies, larger vendors might not even care necessarily that, that, that they're here with business. So what do you think that entrepreneurs should focus on to get a favorable deal when you are in a position that like maybe in the contract itself or the specific rates or specific terms, are there certain things that you always look for to, to focus on first to make sure you get a favorable deal when you're working with vendors? Um, so I would say with, you know, let's just take the example of a contract manufacturer. I mean, I, I've done en- enough of this over the years, but it hasn't been without uh, a lot of lessons being learned along the way. I mean, it's very important to spell out um, everything that goes into the nature of a relationship because it's the hidden costs that you don't anticipate that the, or those are the ones that get you. So, um, you know, with an, uh, respect to certain contract manufacturers, I mean, getting periods of time established whereby um, prices cannot be increased um, more frequently than has been agreed to is, is a very important feature to include in, in these supply agreements. So, for example, you know, maybe it's every 12 months or every 18 months, you'll, you'll have the ability for the contract manufacturer to pass along ingredient price increases or things on the um, you know indirect side of, of the cost equation, whether it's overhead or labor or things like that. I mean, understanding that you know the contract manufacturer needs to be limited in their um, ability to pass those things along is very important because otherwise, you know, every three to six months they could come back to you with you know, oh, my costs went up in this area, my costs went up in that area, and you've already invested all this time with a supplier. And um, it's not as easy just to pick up and start that process all over again, especially when you have customer orders that are anticipated or are actually ongoing. So establishing what the ability is of the supplier to increase cost over some period of time is very important because they can come back to you with, you know, oh, my cost of labor went up or, oh, I had to pass along this cost increase on the ingredient side of things. And, and making sure that they're only able to do that every so often, whether it's 12 months, 18 months or 24 months, whatever the period is that you establish is very important because if you don't have visibility and predictability predictability into you know how your costs are going to look it's impossible to understand what your profitability may or may not be so just setting the the guidelines on the, on the cost side of things is very important in kind of putting in place a relationship that can be successful yeah, I love the idea of setting these caps and these ceilings because you can, that's the only way you can really predict, you know, what can, what can happen in the future. So I, I really love that idea. Um, so you mentioned earlier about one of the the key benefits of uh, going to business school for you was the uh, one one of the things was creating these business plans. So does Fossil Face itself have a business plan? 
Um, you know, it's interesting, Felix. Things have changed uh, since. Uh, I mean, I'm not. Uh, it hasn't been that long since I went to business school, yeah. but um, there's different schools of thought now in terms of just uh, how you plan and manage a business. Um, a philosophy where you are supposed to um, lay everything out in advance and do these elaborate 50-page business plans and, and all the projections and so forth. And believe me, I, I've spent enough time working on Excel and business plans in my career that I, I probably <laughs> am I'm pretty proficient at this point. So that, that, the mechanics of doing that is not a problem for me. But what actually happens in businesses, at least with um, you know my recent experience in the last five to six years or so, is that things change so rapidly that when you spend all this time in a vacuum analyzing something without really testing it out in the marketplace, you find that things change so much that some of the um, assumptions and expectations that you had initially change to such an extent that almost you really need to revise things much more quickly than a business plan in the traditional sense would allow. Mm -hmm. So what I found with Faucet Face over the last couple of years is I try something. I mean, I have an overall um, strategy of where I want to take the business, but I'm much more flexible in terms of, of you know, shifting in and out of certain strategies if I don't think they're being successful. And so I would think that's one of the biggest changes that I found in terms of my recent experience with entrepreneurship is that it's very important to have a, a foundation in place and an overall strategy that guides you. But you have to be much more flexible in adapting to what's happening in the market and what's working and what's not. Otherwise, you can get too far down a path that ultimately won't be successful. And I think you spend too much time trying to do something that isn't working instead of you know shifting gears into something that might be more successful. No, I love that. I think that that's, that's um, a key point about how the speed of business, the speed of the environment has changed so much that's so quick that by the time you finish your business plan, it's time to start a new one. So, right. But for, for you, like, how do you kind of keep track of all of the, I guess, the direction that you're going? Because I know you're mentioning that you tried things, you have an idea of things you want to try, you try it out and see what happens. How do you, are there like documents, I guess, at the end of the day that you keep track of to make sure that you and if you have a team that everyone's kind of on the same page? So I'm, you know, by nature, I'm a pretty organized and analytical person. It's just a function of just my background and the way my mind, my mind works. But um, I have all sorts of documents and I also have all sorts of calendaring features where I plan everything out. I mean, there is a sort of, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of flexibility that needs to be built in. But at the same time, I do have documents and ways of communicating with our team that allow me to stay on top of things that um, are, are necessary for me to stay on top of. To also uh, mention, though, at the same time, is that you also need time to, to think and to strategize. And I find that if you spend too much time um, you know, in front of a, a laptop, laptop or too much time on social media and too much time being reactive you know, in terms of just always responding to email, and you, know, you can lose sense of where you want to take things strategically. And so I always make sure that I set aside time um, at least you know, once a day or at least multiple times a week to make sure I'm thinking about how things are doing, where I want to take the business. You know, we, maybe that's even on a Sunday morning or something if I'm out exercising. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be so structured that it is always at the same place in the same time. But um, it's important to be able to uh, you know, keep you know, uh, tabs on where the business is on a day-to-day -day basis. But um, if you don't have time to step away and really think things through, you wind up becoming too reactive. And that is not the best way to spend your time, in my opinion, because as an entrepreneur and as someone who um, is trying to grow a business, uh, you can basically work 24-7. There's no limit to how much you can work. The key that I found is really how you spend your time. And so every morning I you know, set out what my schedule is going to be that, for that day and I try to be proactive as opposed to being reactive. Now, 
things come up throughout the day that I need to deal with. But if you don't plan your schedule and, and try to establish what it is you want to accomplish, then the, the kind of the day to day can kind of take over. So I would encourage all entrepreneurs to really make sure that they're spending their time wisely. They're always having checkpoints in terms of what are the top priorities to focus on because you can spend a, a lot of time doing things and not be very efficient or effective. And um, that's not going to allow you to be as successful as you can be if you're spending your time wisely. Yeah, this is the whole battle. The, the, what you're talking about this is a battle between working on your business versus working in your business. And it's funny because when you first start off any venture, you have so much time to plan and so much time to work on the business. And then as you get into it, as you, your business becomes more successful, you become more established, you spend more time working in the business and it starts becoming a battle like, like what I was saying before about how do you separate yourself and get that time because it's it's a I think all entrepreneurs know that they need this to step back and think about their business strategically and from a higher level uh, but how do you you know personally stay disciplined to make sure you carve out that time especially when you know fires are happening all the time and like you're saying you could be working 24 hours a day in your business well, I just know I have enough confidence now. I've been doing this for a while that I know that if I don't step away and strategize, I mean, that's absolutely where my best ideas come from. If I'm out, you know, hiking on a Sunday morning with, with my dog, I mean, that's a great time for me to think because there's no interruption. You know, if there's time early in the morning, I usually wake up very early in the morning before most people are up. So that allows me to kind of get my day started without being inundated from, from the get go. Um, I just know by now that if I am just constantly being reactive, not only is it not satisfying from just a personal standpoint, because I'm not, I'm letting the day take control of me as mm-hmm. opposed to me taking control. And I just know intuitively that that's not going to allow me to be successful. You know, I've also tried to model others in terms of just the, the, the kind of things that um, other successful entrepreneurs have done in terms of, and the lessons that they've learned. And I, I, I do a lot of reading um, throughout, you know, online magazines, just podcasts, whatever it might be, to try to learn from other entrepreneurs and other leaders that have been successful to try to identify the traits that are, are most relevant to being um, productive and successful in my business. And I, you know, I, I have identified those early on as things that I need to to build into my day to day. And so. I've been able to do that. Uh, I'm not going to say it's, it's it's never a struggle. I mean, there are days where I just um, I, I kind of lose sight a bit of, of what's happening. You just have to be responsive because otherwise, just um, things don't get done. But um, you know, you have to have the confidence that you are able to to kind of you know kind of set things on the right mm. course and um, not uh, kind of let the the kind of minutia sometimes take over. And so. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm saying that I have that now. It's taken me a long time to get to that point. I probably didn't have that a few years ago or, or certainly, not, you know, not five, 10 years ago. So um, some of this is learning by doing and, and experience and confidence gaining and, and knowing that when I have that time set aside for me to strategize and I see the results of that be successful, that allows me to know that the next time that I'm going to, to, to do that, that it's the right thing for me to be doing. I love that. I think that's really important, this kind of feedback that you had to give yourself because I think confidence comes from just trying something, seeing the results of it, and either seeing that it was helpful or it wasn't as bad as you imagined in your head. And that right. kind of helps you build the confidence because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, we have this this fear that we let our foot off the gas pedal, everything's going to fall apart. But you're saying that, you know, take your foot off the gas pedal and get the time to think about your business from a more strategic level 
and then you'll see at the at the you know weeks or months down the road that things will actually start to come together a lot better than if you were just focusing in your business the entire time. And then this moment that you're talking about, this pause and looking back and realizing, hey, I've been in this situation before where I had to decide whether I should work in my business or on my business, and I made the right decision by working on the business. It worked out better than if I were just to you know work on the day to day thing. So I think um, that's really key, and that's kind of the the the, um, the idea of building this habit of making sure that you're you are you are working strategically on your business instead. So just hearing you talk, you know, about your the, the your analytical approach, and hearing you talk about what has been successful for you, I feel like you and probably a lot of the other successful entrepreneurs have routines and habits, like a daily routine that you get into. Do you have a daily routine or like a morning routine that that you always make sure to hit when you start your day? Felix, I feel, I feel like you're getting to know me pretty well by now. <laughs> no, I'm mean, just hearing you talk. I'm like, this guy has, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the same way. I feel like, I'm a, I think we're all kind of creatures of, ha- creatures of habits to some degree. And I think if you can latch onto that and build on top of it, you're just going to eventually become successful. So I would love to hear more about how you kind of structure your day. Sure. And uh, those close to me will uh, substantiate, um, I guess, your uh, assessment that I, I, I likely am someone who is structured in yeah. that sense. So I'm up early. You know, I'm out here on the West Coast. I'm typically up at five. I will work um, for a few hours in the morning and then take a break. And then, um, you know, we're, I, I work best throughout the day in kind of two to three hour blocks. Um, I definitely find time five or six days a week to uh, to exercise in some way. Um, I have a lot of outside pursuits outside of business that keep me grounded um, in terms of a family and in terms of just um, outside interests um, that range from animal rights to uh, the environment to just uh, health and wellness to just uh, entertainment and just I mean I have a lot of outside interests that kind of I feel I feel like are additive in terms of my you know being successful as an entrepreneur if that's the case um, just uh, having different perspectives and getting the um, kind of insight that different uh, disciplines allows I think is very important. I I think, um, like you said earlier, you know, if you are just doing, uh, you know, if you're working in your business all of the time, you're just not at all getting the outside perspective that I think is necessary, not only in terms of the tangible things that are, are essential to run a business, but it's the intangibles as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a creature of habit. I, I kind of um, have found a, a routine that works well for me. And just in, in knowing that I, I, I don't like to work late into the evenings, I'm much better in the morning. And if I don't, find some time to exercise. I'm usually not effective in that sense. And um, it's also having the diversity of, of things in your life that allow you to, I think, and enjoy the time outside of, your, you know, your kind of work in your business that, um, you know, it's funny when I was working with, uh, you know, a big company in the financial world, I just, uh, you, you have that feeling on the Sunday night where you're just dreading going to work on the next mm-hmm. day. And I just, uh, someone was mentioning that to me recently and I, I just haven't had that in so long. I can't even relate. And it's like, I'll work on the weekends, I'll work whatever, um, you know, or whenever I need to, to, to kind of get the job done, but I don't feel like I'm being forced to work. You know, I, uh, even on a Friday afternoon, if I, um, there's other things I could be doing if I wanted to, but I find time to uh, get parts of the business uh, or to give, you know, parts of the business attention that maybe haven't had it. And that's enjoyable for me. You know, it's, um, I, I don't look at it as work in the traditional sense. So I, you know, creating a lifestyle for me was always very important in the, in the sense of, uh, you know, making sure that, um, you know, my work life and my personal life were, um, you know, there's definitely separation, but I didn't want it to be um, something that was just so um, cut and dry, you know, like where people go to an office and then when they leave, it's like they completely shut down. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to have some mixture between the two. 
and um, really find something that um, I, I enjoy doing that uh, reflected who I am as a person. And um, this type of business and this type of lifestyle fits me to the T. And I, you know, it took me a while to fit, figure that out. Um, you know, so uh, but I'm glad I did. And um, you know, sometimes you have to go through things and situations that um, aren't a good fit for you to kind of find out what uh, the best thing is uh, that that's going to make you happy. So, yeah, I, I like this idea of balance. You know, you said that you have a lot of outside interests, and I think the other side of the, the I guess the other kind of camp in this is that people will say you have to be obsessed with your business, you have to be completely absorbed by it. And is there ever a stage that you find that you you should be obsessed about your business and not have outside interests, or like what's your experience with that? Well, so yeah, I mean, let me tell you a story about, you know, back in the late 90s when I was in grad school, I was with a technology company. This was a B2B company during the time when, you know, B2B was uh, very, very popular. I was with a company that raised a bunch of money. We were moving a million miles an hour. We had top-tier strategic backers, top-tier financial backers. And this was back at the time where, you know, I was in my late 20s and I just, um, you know, you felt like there was such pressure and such intensity and there was such a... Um, kind of soul focus that needed to be um, in place for you to be successful. And, and so I didn't know any different at the time. I felt like, you know, what everyone was telling you, what it kind of was going on around you was the only way to make it happen. And, you know, the company didn't wind up being successful. We actually wound it down. We weren't able to raise additional funding. A lot of companies at the time, you know, found a similar fate. But, um, you know, I, I took away from that experience where, you know, I, I did sacrifice things on the outside of work that um, I probably, in hindsight, um, regret a little bit, but I, I use it as a learning experience. And I just found that being so singularly focused and so, um, you know, in the sense of just not allowing yourself to, to kind of shut down, it, it didn't prove to be successful for me or the company. Mm. And I just took away from that that, Look, there's nothing. I love what I do. I, I work a ton. I don't clock my hours. It's not um, in the sense I'm willing to do whatever is necessary. But you, you got to see the big picture. And so if you, if you're not doing things outside of work that make you happy, and you don't have relationships and things in your life that allow you to to be happy outside of work, um, I personally don't believe that you can be successful. Um, I think maybe others would disagree. That's perfectly fine. But. I've I've found what works for me to to be to be um, a good mix, and um, you know a lot of that is through personal experience. But um, you know I encourage everyone to find their own path. But I I feel like um, I found the right one for me. Yeah, I think it really depends on kind of your goals and the day. You're saying that you want to really create a lifestyle for yourself, and if there if you're just working nonstop and you're solely obsessed with your business, then you know what is the point? I guess is what you're getting at. Like, what's the big picture at the end of the day? Makes sense. Cool. So let's talk about the business itself. So you said um, business started in 2011. You were not the original, I guess, creator of it, but then you had purchased it. So talk to us a little bit about how you found out about Fossil Face. And well, we'll start there. How did you find out about Fossil Face? So um, the original founder was looking for someone um, to uh, be brought on as a CEO. This is back in 2012. And um, we had talked a little bit. It didn't wind up being um, the right fit at the time. And we stayed in touch. And uh, over a period of time, he just um, decided that he wanted to go off and do other things. He, you know, I think as I alluded to previously, he was a, a fantastic product designer. Um, I think that's what he enjoyed more than actually building and running a business. And um, I, you know, for uh, you know, a period of a couple of years, was on and off looking for other businesses. I, I looked pretty closely at buying a few other businesses that didn't wind up working out. And um, this really fit a number of parameters that I was trying to, to, to kind of check off on my list as far as you know potential companies to buy. It was in a, a consumer products business. It had a lot of growth potential in terms of just my background, what I felt like I could add. Um, you know, there was a great brand possibility. I mean, the initial building blocks were in place. Um, 
you know, we had um, all the essentials uh, that I felt that were, were kind of um, right for me to take the company to the next level. So, you know, I think from the time that Mason and I met till the time I actually wound up acquiring the company, it was a period of about nine or ten months. And as I said, there was a lot of on and off. There was a lot of pause in communication. There was little negotiation and back and forth. But once we actually agreed to the initial set of terms, we went through a period of due diligence that was pretty quick. You know, by my experience, it was about 60 days, which is, I mean, there wasn't um, a ton to go through. I focused on the key points that I felt were relevant. And um, we actually wound up closing the deal in June of 2013. And, uh, he helped me for a little bit, you know, maybe 45 days after that. But I, I feel like I picked it up pretty quickly and um, I was off and running from that point forward. Very cool. So you said that you, you know, obviously purchased this business, but you're also looking at other businesses to purchase yes. previously. What attracts you to buying a business instead of, uh, I guess, pursuing an idea from, from scratch? You know, I had looked at doing things from scratch and um, this was also part of that self-realization that I felt um, – you know, a person like Mason, the founder of Faucet Face, the original founder, was a fantastic product designer and a concept person. Um, I just uh, decided at that point that I was a better um, executor of a, a, an existing idea or product or business um, and much better suited to taking it to the next level based on um, my attributes that um, I had learned over the years and my personal attributes as well. So um, I felt like that was a better way to spend my time. I obviously have a lot of familiarity with um, the aspects of mergers, acquisitions, financings, just doing all those sorts of things from the deal side of it. Mm -hmm. So that came naturally to me. And I just felt um, I, I tried coming up with concepts and kind of getting them from concept stage to product stage to um, kind of, you know, the, the point of, of rolling it out into the marketplace. And I just um, decided to go the route of an acquisition. And, uh, you know, as I said, I looked at a number of companies and just uh, whether it was the economics or whether it was the nature of the product or the brand or the business or just whatever it was, you know, I looked at, uh, you know, not an insignificant number of opportunities. I mean, close, probably about five to 10 in, in, in total over a period of a couple of years. And, uh, Wind up settling on faucet face is the right one for me, and I'm glad I did. So, yeah. So, what what did you um? What did you, I guess? What did you notice about the business or the the idea of the market that made you feel like it was a good fit? That it was the one, especially after spending so many years looking at other businesses. Well, I just felt like um, the brand was great. There was um, a real um, kind of uh, you know sense from customers and from people that had been affiliated either directly or indirectly with the company and brand that it was it stood for something um, important in terms of, I'll get into this a little bit later, in terms of the charitable aspect of the business. Um, it uh, stood for something in terms of just trying to eliminate single-use plastic bottles in terms of the environment. Um, promoting the consumption of water um, has uh, you know essential elements of health and wellness tied to it. So a lot of the themes that um, are important to me personally and uh, that were part of the most recent full-time um, you know, company that I was with, uh, you know, I, I sold back a few years ago was, um, it was kind of a natural um, merging of all these worlds in one. And so that, you know, evoking all the themes that were personal to me was, was very important. But um, in terms of just the way the business was set up, it was uh, set up in, in the exact way I wanted um, a business that I, I wanted to acquire to be set up in terms of uh, just the, the virtual nature of it, in terms of having relationships with contract manufacturers, third-party logistics companies, um, have everything um, kind of um, flexible and automated from the customer and from the order processing side of things that allows you to scale it quickly. Um, were very important to me. I didn't want anything, for example, like a retail store or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Nothing like with a manufacturing facility tied to it, with in terms of property or equipment or anything like that. So, 
it was really a mixture of the themes that the business stood for, the nature of the way the business set up. And honestly, I felt like um, the business really played to my, my strengths from a personal side of things. And just into, I, I knew I could grow it um, just based on the fact that I'd done it before. And so I, I tried to keep that in mind. That, that was also you know, one of those examples where just having the confidence that I, I had grown a business that was similar to this before, I, I felt pretty strongly that I could make it happen again. Yeah, I think, you know, for any entrepreneur out there that is thinking about buying business for their first time or they already have a business looking to buy another one, and this is always this fear that, you know, if it's such a good business, why are they selling it? So how do you kind of approach this, like, when you're looking to buy a business? Like, how did you even find, like, what's your approach to looking for businesses to buy, and what do you evaluate? Well, so for me, um, I'm not the kind of person that's looking to overpay, so I will pass on a lot of deals that, I feel like are up for auction that are going to go to the highest bidder that are going to be all cash deals. I mean that that's not for me. Um, that's fine for um, someone who has a different set of um, kind of parameters in terms of the way they do deals. But I prefer to look at undervalued assets that, um, for whatever reason, have not been fully exploited to their potential. And um, I think that allow me to utilize the skills that I have to take it to the next level. And so what that does is Felix, it requires a lot of patience because. Finding deals like this isn't easy, but I also think that that is an essential element of the way I approach things because I'm very persistent, I'm very detail-oriented, I'm very willing to wait things out and do the work necessary to uncover opportunities like this. I I build relationships, I look at opportunities all of the time. I you know Over the years, I still look at opportunities even if I'm not looking. So I, I have no problem passing on things if I don't think they're the right fit, but I, I, will, I am not at all willing to overpay for something. And if it's going to an open auction that is going to go to the highest bidder, that's definitely not going to be for me. Mm, so you're not going to like a site that's selling it publicly or auctions no, or like that? that's not going to be for me. I just, I'm not interested in that. I, I For me, it's got to be a... You know, uh, an off the run, like an uh, you know, an undervalued type situation where there's not going to be a lot of ne- interest necessarily tied to it. That is more kind of like an undiscovered gem that um, I'm able to uncover through hard work and through research and persistence. Um, if it's out there and everyone's looking at it, that's probably not the right deal for me. Mm, makes sense. So when it comes, because you have someone's experience uh, in your job and obviously with this particular purchase, what are some key points in, in, a, in a deal like this that an entrepreneur that's maybe buying business for their first time that they should pay attention to? So the most important thing for me was just the nature of the intellectual property. And um, so for a business like this, you know, Back at the time, there was no patent. There was no trademark even. There were um, obviously domain names that were owned. There was uh, inventory. There was you know, uh, um, some of the things on the manufacturing side as far as like molds for the glass bottles that we sell. I mean, understanding what the intellectual property is that exists or that you need to have transferred properly is, is the most important thing. And then um, the way I structured a deal like this without getting into too much of the you know, esoterics is just um, I structured it as an asset purchase. So um, basically what that allowed me to do is to basically only buy the assets of the business that I wanted and I didn't inherit any of the liabilities or debt. Um, basically that way you are insulated from anything that may have occurred prior to the acquisition mm-hmm. that was done without your knowledge in terms of just obligations that weren't paid procedures that weren't followed, things like that. So, um, And that's a deal structure that I've used many times in the past, and that's exactly how I did this one, knowing that that was the best way for me to do it. That way, from the date that I owned the business going forward, anything that happened uh, was on my watch, which is perfectly fine. Um, but I wasn't going to have anything come out of the work that you know someone didn't play you know their taxes, someone did something that was not in accordance with um, the FTC as far as what's required in, in terms of um, 
uh, advertising requirements. So um, just I, I knew that I wanted to structure the deal in that way to protect myself, and um, I was able to to make it happen. So yeah, I mean to be honest, this sounds quite uh, daunting. <laughs> Would you recommend that a I guess first time entrepreneur buy a business as their first or I would say that I have full confidence the most smart, you know, kind of entrepreneurial go-getters can can do this. Um, I would get advice if they are not as familiar familiar with um, some of the deal points as I am. And then there's a lot of good attorneys out there. There's a lot of good CPAs. There's a lot of good coaches. There's a lot of good mentors that people have that can provide the same guidance. You know, I, ju- I just have done a lot of this myself, so I didn't really need any of that. I mean, I had an attorney that worked with me and that was fine, but I was the one kind of driving the whole process. And, you know, as I said, Felix, this type of arrangement played to my strengths, which is why I sought it out. And so I feel like um, anyone can can do this if they surround themselves with the right people. But if there's a different path that allows someone to play to their respective strengths better than a situation like this, that's perfectly fine too. I think it's all about knowing what your lane is and and what you're going to be successful at. And for me, I I felt like uh, in this kind of structure, I I probably could be successful. And um, you know, the, the way the deal was structured, at least I felt, was very much in my favor. So mm, Makes sense. So one thing I asked you before we uh, had gotten started, I see when we were first um, arranging a time to, to chat, you mentioned that your most successful marketing strategy was utilizing a combination of email marketing with targeted social media initiatives to leverage offline PR efforts. Can you t- explain this a little bit more? Like, what, is that, what does that mean? Absolutely. You know, and this is kind of part of the trial and error over the last couple of years. Um, I've done every kind of marketing known to man. And so I have done all of the paid um, you know, uh, options across social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, um, Instagram is having some online advertising now. I, I've done all that. Um, for me, at least, it hasn't been successful in Faucet Face. There probably are reasons why, but I mean, I may revisit it at some point in the future. But uh, I've tried all those, and I, you know, I, 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 I analyzed the metrics, and I decided over periods of time in each one of those instances that it wasn't working as well as I think it could have. Um, we have done uh, paid search. We have done SEO. We have done retargeting. I mean, we've done all of these things that are options out there for e-commerce business and they just weren't successful. And I think through a lot of trial and error, we eventually settled on a strategy of utilizing social media in terms of an organic approach. So now I have a team of people that uh, manages our uh, social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, you know, I personally do the, most of the Instagram and, and Pinterest and we're looking at some other platforms as well. We have a top group now that we're working with that's doing our email marketing. You know, it's funny. I resisted doing email marketing for so long because, as a consumer, I was concerned that people were getting inundated with too much, um, you know, email. But looking at the numbers, um, at least for right now, email marketing to me is still continues to be effective. I mean, in terms of our return on investment, and um, that may change at some point in the future. But for right now, it's um, become an integral part of our marketing strategy. And um, then, in terms of offline efforts, PR initiatives like this. We do a lot of work with um, events in terms of donating our product in exchange for um, publicity. I have done a number of, um, you know, kind of uh, arrangements with, you know, for example, like award shows here in Los Angeles, working with the primetime Emmys or the Grammys or things like that, where we set up a booth and talk about our company and give away our our product to um, potential endorsers and things like that. So, um, you know, right now, this is the mixture of, of you know, marketing um, that we're using. It may change and it probably will change. But, um, you know, for the company size that we're at right now, I find, found it to be most effective. I, I just would think, you know, say to other entrepreneurs out there, um, there's a lot of interest nowadays in use, utilizing things like Facebook and Twitter from an advertising standpoint. I think that big brands 
have been very successful with utilizing those platforms, but they do um, require a significant um, budget spend that you need to be willing to allocate over a significant period of time to build the consistency in your messaging that uh, a lot of growing brands cannot withstand. So um, I think it's you know a matter of finding what's best for you and what works for your business. But above all else, you need to be flexible. And, and you know, so we watch this very closely. And the minute that I see things shifting or changing, we're going to be willing to try something else. Yeah, so let's start with the uh, the social media approach. Because I'm assuming, again, based on what I know from you, just from talking to you, I'm sure your team is not just randomly posting things on there. So, what is your kind of analytical approach to to this, to I guess, organic uh, social media initiatives? So, there's a book by uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who you probably know is a, is a luminary in this space, and you know it's all about um, you know jab, 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 punch. So, it's just mm-hmm. basically utilizing a mixture, of, and this is a, a mantra that I've incorporated into our business. Um, you don't want to always be selling, right? Your product. You want to be evoking themes that are relevant to, to yourself and your brand and your audience that resonate with people and that create a favorable impression. And so, whatever that ratio is of jabs to punches, if that you want to use that terminology, whether it's ten to one or fifteen to one, I you know I don't know that we figured that out precisely yet, but there needs to be a proper sequence in place where you are um, you know, not constantly overselling people in terms of just you know, discounts and things like that. So you want to be highlighting themes. In our case, it's highlighting the aspects of our company that I think resonate well, whether it's the environment or charity or health and wellness or animal rights, things like that. So we post on topical things. Um, I like to post on our Instagram page things that are personal to me, ranging from things that I do in and around Los Angeles to just you know current events or you know a, a fun whiz- whimsical um, you know kind of look at the de- you know day to day things that we encounter. So uh, that having that proper mixture is the most important thing because you can see out you know brands out there that are just overselling and over promoting and over you know over discounting their 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 products that ultimately wind up hurting themselves in the long run. So striking that balance is very important. I'm not going to say we're perfect at it, but we've learned a lot along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about email marketing now. And I, I totally hear your, I guess, c- concern with it initially about uh, there's just so way too many uh, junk emails that people are getting today as a consumer. You're really hesitant to do that. But then, I, you know, I, just knowing the way you are, again, you approached it, you try it out, and it seems to be working for you. So how did you, um, how do you, how do you guys collect email addresses? How do you build up your, your email list? So, you know, when I bought the business, we inherited the list, which was good. Um, you know, we grew it over time based on, uh, you know, opt-ins when people purchase our products through Shopify. Um, then we just have people that come to our site and sign up. But we've be- become much more um, focused recently on um, we created a, a kind of it's not a header, but it's kind of like a section on the bottom of each page on our website, which allows people to opt into our uh, newsletter. They get a you know twenty percent off their first purchase, that kind of thing. We have a pop up now across all you know our online and offline um, you know site visits that allow us to capture email addresses. Then you have to basically work them into a sequence, you know, welcome sequence, and then our traditional um, set of communications that we we have in place for. Um, our customers, we actually segmented out into um, you know people that buy on our website, and then also people that buy uh, our product for stores, and then people that buy our custom designs. So we have three separate um, email sequences based on the type of customer that you are. Mm, yeah, so that's um, let's talk about like what you're sending to them because I think are you still taking this approach of you know jab jab jab, and I think uh, Gary calls it the right hook where you actually ask for something in return. Right. Do you take the same approach with email? 
Um, we do, um, because once again, if you're just emailing people just 20% off coupons all of the time, it's completely useless. They tone out, and it's not interesting to them. We need to talk about things like Y Glass or talk about our One for 100 charitable program. We need to talk about um, the amount of money that you'll save by you know, eliminating single-use plastic bottles. These are the things that people want to hear because, look, we're all consumers nowadays. We all get this amount of email. If you really want to just focus on finding a coupon for whatever product it is you want to buy, and you have enough time, you probably can spend enough time doing it. I mean, that's not why people um, let you into their world in terms of just opting into your email sequence. They want to know about the brand. They want to know about what it is you have to say. I, I can't tell you how many people order our custom bottles that tell me, look, you know, could I go maybe direct to China? Could I go on Alibaba? Could I find a promotional products company directly that will just sell me any kind of glass bottle? Probably. But I like your brand. I like what you stand for. I like the, the kind of look and feel of your site. I like what you have to say across social media. And that resonates really well with people. And it's really important to remember that because you're not just selling a product. You're selling a brand. If you're just selling a product, it becomes a commodity. And then it's a race to the bottom mm. where you're just competing on price. And that's not the kind of business we want to be. Makes sense. Now, when it comes to PR, how do you find the opportunities to get your products in uh, influencers' hands? So, you know, it's just a mixture. Once again, you know, some people find us, sometimes we find them. We actually did a uh, spot with um, uh, Jill Steals and Deals on the Today on NBC show back in January. That was a huge success for us. We actually, um, there was a PR um, um, contact I found here in Los Angeles and she introduced us to the opportunity. We wound up capturing, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of new um, subscribers to our newsletter. We had um, a lot of sales from that. It was a very aggressive promotion we ran, but that's the kind of thing where it ran on, you know, today on NBC with, you know, basically on average has like a six million viewership. And so for us, you know, what I've tried to focus on now is exposing ourselves to new audiences, right? I mean, we've done kind of the local, um, you know, kind of um, celebrity thing in terms of just these award shows. I mean, what I'm focused on now is trying to look at new opportunities to expose ourselves to new audiences because I feel like when we do, we have something good to say and it, it, it's very positive. So I try to be selective now in not overdoing messaging to the same audience. So I'm very interested in, in speaking to new people and, and telling them who we are and what we're all about and um, trying to expand our reach, so to speak, in that sense. Mm, makes sense. So one other thing that you had mentioned uh, before the call was about the critical importance of leveraging limited resources to maximize return on investment. Can you give us, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that, maybe some examples? Well, Absolutely. And this is one of those things, it seems counterintuitive, but I, I've seen both sides. So, you, you, you know, there, you have companies that have a lot of cash. They raise a lot of money, especially in the tech space in Northern California. And I'll tell you, from my experience, having a lot of cash is, can be the kiss of death because you make decisions that are, are, are somewhat sloppy. You enter into long-term mm-hmm. leases with large deposits. You enter into relationships with, you know, I'm not disparaging PR firms, but a lot of PR firms want um, significant retainers and ongoing relationships that for small companies probably are not the best fit. Um, So you wind up not negotiating things as favorably as you would if you had limited resources. So I I try to keep things really lean in that standpoint. I'm not saying we negotiate every nickel, but it's really important to always remember that we are a growth company. Every dollar we spend has an alternative use to it. There's an opportunity cost to you know, if I make this trip to a trade show and spend you know X amount, I could spend that money on online marketing. So what's the trade-off there? And I think always understanding that you, um, as a growing company, have limited resources. It's imperative that you make the right decisions in terms of how you allocate your 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 you know hard dollars and how you allocate your time also as well to make sure that you're spending the money in the right way. So 
I think it's important never to lose sight of that. I know when companies get big and they have um, you know large you know overhead structures and personnel and much more money in the bank, some of that um, kind of subsides a little bit. But me personally speaking, I, I like to keep things tight in that sense and lean and make sure that I'm really staying on top of what our costs are and the ways that we could be spending our money. Yeah, I'm in the middle of reading this book now. I just got started called Profit First, which kind of talks about this, about once you start having some degree of success, you start, like you're saying, entering into these longer term agreements that are not as favorable as if you would as you would have, uh, I guess, structured them if you were kind of had your back to the wall. So how do you keep this kind of mentality going, right? Because once you do start having cash and some success, you it almost starts burning a hole in your pocket and you feel like, man, if I don't spend it, I'm not investing in my <laughs> business, right? So how do you kind of make that right decision? Um, it just, for me, it comes naturally, and this doesn't happen with everyone, but I, I've yeah. seen the downsides of businesses and how, you know, I was part of this company in the late 90s that raised, you know, an obscene amount of money and, and spent it all. And so, I, I mean, I, I know what the pitfalls are. Mm. I've been a couple of up and down cycles, and that allows me to kind of see past what's happening right now and know that when things are good, you've got to capitalize on it, but things ultimately will, you know, everything ebbs and flows, right? And so, um, you know, you have to have the big picture understanding that um, not to get too carried away with anything that's happening in the short term. And, and I, I want this company to be around for a long time. I want to grow this organically. I want to add to it in terms of acquisition. Like I'm not like this is real personal to me. It's not something I'm just trying to buy and sell and, and kind of get out of. And it's all about making money. So um, I, I want to do the right things for the business. And so I I'm very cognizant of the need to be careful with the way money is being spent, and I don't think that's going to change. As, as long as I'm as hands-on as I am right now, that's definitely not going to change. Makes sense. Cool. So I want to talk about the, uh, I guess, the charitable aspect of your business is one for 100. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. So uh, this was a relationship that the prior owner had put in place, and um, it's basically something for us to allow us to give back for um, each, you know, sale that we make. And we basically have a relationship with an organization called TMA, which is um, uh, based here in Los Angeles. It's called Third Millennium Awakening. And then they have an internal relationship with a group um, over in India, which um, implements, installs um, biosand water filters. So for each sale of our classic design water bottles, we donate a percentage of those sales to this organization, which then in turn uh, donate this money to establish these filters in poor areas in, in remote villages of India where people don't have access to clean water. And uh, that's a big problem in terms of sanitary reasons, in terms of just being able to um, do things like sh- you know bathe and, and clean your, your, your clothing and obviously consume and drink water. It becomes really challenging to, to be able to do that in a healthy way with the ability to pick up all sorts of diseases and, th- and things like that. So we donate a percent of each sale to this organization. They put these biosand filters in place, which basically removes uh, about 90 to 95% of all the impurities in these water in the water that they consume. And it's, it's really helpful in making a difference in, in these people's lives. And uh, so the way that it, that it works is just um, for every, you know, one bottle, so to speak, you are in the way the math works out is you're basically giving people 100 uh, liters of, of clean water in terms of just the way that, you know, donation works. And uh, that's kind of our way of characterizing the program and, and letting people know that um, they are doing something by purchasing our product that can actually help people in need and that can make a difference. And um, that also is something which was, was very important to me to just not keep everything, you know, purely from a, a profit-oriented uh, standpoint. I mean, it's, it's very important to try to make a difference. And I think we're doing all sm- our small part in this way. 
Yeah, I think it's an awesome, awesome initiative, and I'm sure it also keeps you motivated to keep on growing the business because it has a direct impact on these people's lives. So, what's in store for uh, the remainder of this year? Like, what are some goals that you want to hit with uh, Fossil Face? Um, we are working on a lot of different things. You know, we're always introducing new limited edition designs. We're working on a couple of different bottle styles. You know, small, medium, and large, which we're excited about. Um, as I said, periodically we look at um, the opportunity to acquire companies that are complementary to us that I think would allow us to grow the company. So there's some things that we're looking at uh, on that side of things. Um, in terms of just the customer base, uh, we are looking at some interesting, interesting opportunities both domestically and internationally to expand our uh, presence in stores, um, specifically on the international side that it's been something I've been trying to do for a long time. You know, we, we've had a lot of interest and um, as you might expect, just shipping product, you know, from one party to another internationally without an intermediary can be challenging just in terms of just the shipping cost and uh, things like that. So it's important to have relationships with people on the ground in different parts of the world to, to make that happen more uh, effectively. So um, we're in discussions uh, with a number of groups along those lines. And, uh, you know, just trying to be more, um, uh, get better at what we're doing just day to day. I mean, we're selling, um, you know, uh, increased amounts over last year, over the year before, so that's good. Um, staying on top of the trends in terms of marketing and social media will continue to be very important. And then opportunistically, as opportunities um, present themselves to us to, to continue to tell our message um, and get the word out about who we are and what we do, um, we're very excited about that, uh, that as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Woody. So faucetface.com, F-A-U-C-E-T-F-A-C-E.com is a website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you're up to? Definitely visit us across social media. Like I said, you know, um, we're very active on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram and, and, and Pinterest, and we're going to be um, uh, setting up a presence on some other platforms soon, but that's the best way to find out about us. Uh, sign up for our newsletter. We'll promise not to bug you too often, <laughs> but... Uh, I think we have some interesting material to share for you and uh, we hope you uh, give us a chance and um, we thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I think um, the email and all the social media links are all on the site as well at faucetface.com yes. so that's probably the best place to go. Cool, again, thanks so much for your time, Woody. All right, Felix, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.